there were all kinds of applications to mindfulness, particularly inmates and long sentences who despair and all the issues they presented. People in hospice. On one hand, you had people with immense amounts of time. On the other, the opposite end of the scale, people in hospice trying to allay their fears and manage what little time they have. Hi, everyone. This is Ben Guest, and welcome to Conversations About Creativity. Although, really, it's just interesting conversations with interesting people. Today's conversation is with author Roland Lazenby. Roland has written several books about the NBA and NBA players and coaches, including Michael Jordan, The Life, which was the basis for the 10-part Netflix documentary, The Last Dance. Wrote a biography of Kobe Bryant called Showboat, biography of Phil Jackson called Mind Games, and a biography of Jerry West called Jerry West. So in this episode, we dive into all of those key characters in NBA history, and we start with someone who's not so well-known. I'll call him Phil Jackson's Phil Jackson, a man named George Mumford, who did mindfulness sessions both with the Bulls and with the Lakers, and both Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant have identified George Mumford as key to their success in the NBA. And George has written a book about mindfulness in sports called The Mindful Athlete. Speaking of mindfulness in sports, my book, Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, comes out November 1st exclusively on Amazon as both paperback, hardback, and ebook. So if you're interested in today's conversation and our discussion about George Mumford, our discussion about mindfulness and performance, or you just want to read a kick-ass basketball story, please consider buying my book when it comes out on Amazon November 1st. Again, the name is Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball. On to the conversation with Roland Lazenby. Roland, thank you so much for coming on. So, Absolutely, Ben. Appreciate the chance to visit. Well, let's dive into basketball and meditation. Yep. Can you talk about... George Mumford and share with the listeners who George Mumford is. He, he became a savior to Kobe Bryant. I introduced George and Kobe one night courtside before a game in Houston. And Kobe was just getting ready to work with Phil. And Kobe said, let me get this straight. Looked at George and said, as busy as the NBA is, as hard as it is to find practice time phil jackson really cuts out the lights and has the team sit on the floor with you during practice and george said yes that that happened that's how a lot of it would happen and kobe just shook his head you know he but very soon and he you know about a year before kobe died he called up George out of the blue one day and told him, I've never forgotten a single word you've told me. And he flew George out to Southern California and put him on his helicopter and rode him all over the place, showing him all his media stuff, all the things Kobe was doing, and, you know, and thanked him for all that George had done. And of course, I, inter- I introduced Tex Winter to Kobe. 
kid that was eating himself alive with his ambition. And, you know, I was writing about him and talking to him. And uh, he told me one day during the 99 playoffs, when the Spurs were sweeping the Lakers, I was, it was after practice. And I was rebounding free throws for Kobe in the form after practice. Jerry West was sitting courtside. Kobe was practicing missing free throws for end of game situations. And he was, just, I mean, just right, had to have a certain bounce off the front of the rim. And <clears throat> just that. And he told me, he said, you know, I've always dreamed that Tex Winter would be my coach. And I almost fell over, you know, because I had been working with the Bulls. I had come in and I had I had had deny watching Kobe. Larry Drew, the assistant coach, was a friend of mine. And he had clued me in early in the game that Kobe at 18 just had this ridiculous, ridiculous work ethic and this talent level. And so I you know, I'd sort of connected that. And I, 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 if you're covering the sport sort of the way I did, you're, you're looking for that next really talented guide, you know, to get an understanding before everything got insane. And I was able to do that with Kobe. Uh, he went through a lot of changes in his life, in his career. Uh, but yeah, he always but, had that drive. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm answering, I'm, I'm rambling here. I apologize. But George Mumford was vital to Kobe. Before that, he was so vital to Michael Jordan. And um, <clears throat> I think the spread of the of mindfulness in sports, not just through George, but a lot of other people, is really due to his connection with Michael and Kobe. I think that really popularized mindfulness. And of course, George, George's book, he's the author of The Mindful Athlete. Those things and his book helped drive a big part of the growth there. You've written that one of the things that George did was help Jordan and Kobe be more compassionate to their teammates. Could you talk about that? Well, that's a really difficult thing because they are not inclined that way. And being more compassionate from them is measured in teaspoons. They are, they, Kobe was very tough, very aloof. Uh, could be quite a prick. Jordan too, I mean, Phil, Bill Jackson told me one, uh, one of the first big interviews I did with Phil, he said, you know, it's incredible to go in a building and have Michael Jordan on your team and what that means to everybody in that building, especially to the other team. And he said, but it's those days between games when he's really hard to live with sometimes. And that kind of competitive personality uh, requires, it's just not conducive to a lot of team building. 
And that's why they needed the triangle offense in that era. Here, Roland and I get off on a little bit of a tangent, but we come back to discuss Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause, the general manager of the Bulls. And we start with an interview that Phil Jackson gave Roland in 1994. He told me everything in his life. He and Krause were in a war then. Nobody knew about it. And he told me all, he said all these things. And I was really worried because he said all this hard shit about Krause. And so I typed up everything. I put it in story format, everything he said. And he read, I sent it to him. I said, before I, and I had said that Krause was like, I forget, I said maybe 5'7", 240. And the only thing he changed in it, he marked up the 240 and wrote in 260. <laughs> Speaking of um, Phil and, and Krauss Tom, read that. Krauss read yeah. the, the, everything he'd said, and that's really when that their hatred hit, hit warp speed. Um, speaking of Phil and conflict, this is just a nerd NBA question I have. Uh, after Phil's first year with the Lakers, Jerry West resigns, and there was some reporting of differences between the two. What was the story there? Well, uh, Phil, um, Jerry, you know, my Jerry West book opens that day. I'm in the forum rebounding those free throws for Kobe. I'm over there talking with Jerry West. And I start to, and there are rumors that Phil might get hired. And I start to, uh, I ask him a question about Phil. And he just immediately, West was and is uh, just a ball of nerves. And uh, he just went, fuck Phil Jackson. And, and I stopped me. I mean, I was just like, whoa. I said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. He went, no, no, fuck. Phil Jackson. And uh, he, he really felt that Phil was making a move. And he was. And so it wasn't a month later that Jerry was introducing Phil as coach of the Lakers. And of course, a year later, Jerry was leaving and Phil, he wouldn't announce he was leaving. And Phil was the one who confirmed it to Larry Burnett. And so Jerry was saying things like he didn't know if Phil would last when he was asked. And Tex would explain to me that they didn't know what to make of Jerry, but Jerry had ruled over the Lakers for years. Del Harris had told me that he didn't think the Lakers were his team when he was the head coach. They were still Jerry's team. And he said, I was enough of a Jerry fan. I was fine with that. And Jerry was a fierce guy, you know. The triangle really pissed people off. And Phil rubbed it in, as Tex explained, he would rub it in with everybody, just knew how to do it. You know, you can't run the triangle in the NBA today. They effectively outlawed it when they changed all the timeline rules and all of those things. You, 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 And Phil, uh, the thing is, Phil did so terrible in New York because they had changed the timeline rules. And I was amazed they didn't really understand that, that Derek Fisher was coaching was speeding up the triangle. They got furious with him. They considered that insubordination. And yet you had to, because the timeline was now eight seconds. And this was explained to me by um, the, the great Philippines coaches, won 20 plus championships with the triangle, Tim Cohn. 
that he had to abandon it because globally they went to that eight second timeline in basketball once the NBA did it. There was a deep undercurrent of hatred of the triangle and hatred of Phil Jackson. And so basketball, all of these changes that came were not because the, the, the storyline is that basketball evolved naturally to all of this three-point shooting. And I've spent a good bit of time talking with uh, Mike D'Antoni about it because he was sort of the guru of it. and He's never won a title. I mean, Mike is a wonderful guy and a very smart coach, but <clears throat> his teams just weren't good enough defensively uh, to, to get into the playoffs and win a title his seven second or less teams and he he doesn't believe in a, a post shot he, he said they don't teach the post anymore you know that's a bad shot you need a three-pointer you know if you can get a big to set a screen and and dive maybe there but these bigs today it's inefficient and so his logic once um once the Warriors won the 15 title, that D'Antoni's philosophy just swept in. And back to the impact of mindfulness and meditation. Yeah, I'm sorry. How, no, it's no, it's fine. This is all gold. How? So that was a central component to what Phil Jackson brought to any team that he coached. And of course, right. And you make George a mistake at one on the floor if you don't play in the moment. You're going to make that, you're going to be thinking in your mind, you're going to be pissed off that you made a mistake. Next thing you know, you're going to create another one. And, and you know, it, it leads to bad games. Now right. you, you multiply that with the pressure of all the money, all the status of the NBA playoffs on these players. Uh, if you don't give them some tools, strengthen the muscle of the mind as phil said you're not going to be able to do this and of course phil had a great problem in getting people to do this everybody looked at it like <clears throat> and it was a cultural thing um you know african americans come out of the church sometimes the baptist church sometimes other churches, AME, and they're fundamentally leery of jumping into Zen and meditation. And, and so there was a wall there and Phil was having trouble. I don't know if you know this background or not, but Phil's second wife, June, was uh, working uh, with George somewhere, uh, maybe at a prison. George worked with inmates. He was an African-American doing mindfulness with inmates who were serving life terms. He was working, there were all kinds of applications to mindfulness, particularly inmates and long sentences who despair and all the issues they presented people in hospice on one hand you had people with immense amounts of time on the other the opposite end of the scale people in hospice trying to allay their fears and manage what little time they have and so june had observed george you know george is from boston uh i forget why 
um, uh, there was a point where he and June were working together on something. And uh, suddenly, and George had a background in, you know, Baptist faith, as I recall. I've uh, been researching a lot about the Baptist faith and for African-Americans, the role in slavery, and uh, all of this is background of Magic Johnson's life. And uh, But George was a bridge to African-American players. He could articulate so many things, and he could do it in a way that mattered deeply to them. And he did it uh, yes, there are things ab about mindfulness that are very esoteric. There are things about Zen Buddhism that are esoteric. <clears throat> but George came at them with the, a, a pragmatism about how to cope and function and that clarity that, that just was so powerful for me. There are just so many places where the things George said had tremendous application. And they have it for everyone. But they had application for the NBA players to where Phil needed an ally in bringing mindfulness to his teams. And once George got involved, Jordan began to swear by it. He had been a prisoner in, hotel, in the hotel rooms till then. He told George, man, I wish I'd met you a long time ago. I'd have been out of these hotel rooms. Scotty, when I'd ask him about it, Scotty said, yeah, we've been mumfied, you know, and that's when we, when we get that mindfulness, we're mumfied. And they all really had a high treasure for it. And I, when I was out full-time covering the Lakers and Kobe was there, it was literally the one thing that Shaq and Kobe, and they both told me this. Uh, it was literally the one thing they could agree on. And, um, you know, Shaq said, he's our secret weapon. But, <clears throat> you know, it would always never be easy for George. I remember Jerry Krause was very suspicious with the Bulls. And so there would be people in the organization that wanted to give him just fundamental basic respect for all the great things he was doing, but Krauss was such a kingmaker and had so many company men there that it became very difficult. And the more that Phil and Krauss got into it, the more everybody became a proxy for Phil, and George certainly was that there. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, Phil goes to L.A., he, he throws this power move in the Jerry West, Jerry bus. I mean, Jerry, there was something about Phil that Jerry bus didn't like, and he hired him. They, I, I was there. They had Rambus. Rambus had done a pretty good job. I thought, but Phil could sell tickets and the Lakers are all about every organization is, but the Lakers really would do anything to sell season tickets and they needed them coming out of the disaster in 99, getting swept in the first round. You know, they had created all this to have Shaq and Kobe, and they'd gone three seasons, and it just, you know, not done what Jerry West demanded, which was compete. I mean, they had, but they hadn't been able to do it.
And so Jerry West was opposed. He could, he and Phil had, had some bad blood dating back to their NBA playing days. Phil had thrown an elbow that had broken Jerry West's nose. Walt Frazier explained all this to me one night in Cleveland. Then Phil made that move. He and Jeannie Buss got together. And I think that really set the alarm bells off that Phil was making a power move in the organization. And, uh, you know, that he had had that huge power struggle with, I, that I wrote about in this book called Blood on the Horns. That was, ba was the last dance season uh, and all that conflict. I'd been there, I'd seen it all. And I, you know, both sides were, you know, Phil was using his interviews with me to talk about Jerry's bizarre need for intimacy with Michael that the last thing Michael liked to do before he took the floor was go back in the locker room and the peace and quiet and take, take a dump and get ready to play the game. And that so often Krauss would go back there and get in a stall. And, and when I look at those things, Phil said, and on the record interviews about Krauss and later when Krauss and Reinsdorf saw those things in their response, they just went berserk. They, they went out of their minds over that. And so Phil created that kind of animosity at Chicago. Krauss was a <clears throat> fascinating guy and the kingmaker of them all. But absolutely toxic. And mm -hmm. Phil used his toxicity to sort of pull the team together against Krauss. Well, he got to LA, that move, becoming that lover ally with Jeannie Buss, who was already in the, in the showdown, the early stages of the showdown with her brothers over who was going to be the person as their father aged. And I, I think Jerry Buss had his plans. I think Phil threw a, an early monkey wrench into that with this relationship with Jeannie. And boy, you know, that toxicity was off and running. And that ran a pretty uh, public and uh, toxic course. You mentioned earlier you're finishing up a book on Magic Johnson. How's yeah. the book going? I have an 850-page manuscript that I've changed publishers. They used to let me write six or 700-page books at Little Brown. I am uh, not going to get that luxury. And I've always done all this deep background research on the families. And uh, I'm not going to get to do that. And I've done it all, written it all. I'm cutting 45,000 words of that out. And, and sorry, sorry to interrupt, Roland, but but that sucks because there's a million books out there about Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and whatever superstar. But one of the best things, the best thing, I think, about your book, your biography of Michael Jordan, the, it's called Michael Jordan, The Life, is that it's really, obviously, ostensibly, it's about this global superstar, but it's really about the lives of Black Americans in the South and the history of Black Americans in the South in the, in the 19, 1900s. And it's such a beautiful um, 
beautifully researched, not a beautiful history, but a, but just the the scholarship that went into that. And I suspect, because I think one or both of Magic's parents were from the South, I suspect North that Carolina. part of the book w- yeah. was about the great migration uh, uh, north. It is. Uh, father from Mississippi, mother from North Carolina, able to trace um, his great-great-great-grandfathers to... Uh, a, a plantation of, of owned by a very prominent and powerful businessman. Okay. This was in Tarboro in North Carolina. And His mother's side. Yeah. And, and it's really the story of the missionary Baptist faith and um, the role it played. And it's an amazing story. And I have to cut all of it. it that's going to fucking suck. Yeah, uh, it is. And so I I don't know what I'm going to do. But uh, the amazing story is that the missionary Baptists were anti-slavery in the heart of the South in the uh, 1830s. And the 1830s is a magical time. It's when these great, great, great grandfathers are born. Major shit that ignites the fear of white people occurs then, and this editor doesn't want any of it. And uh, they, but it's more about the page count. They have a, they don't want a, uh, and right now the book would be about seven hundred pages. It probably yeah, but be some more, of us want that. The, the the Robert Caro fans out there want that. It's a shame well, that they, know, they the don't Jordan see book, it. The Jordan book has sold a lot of copies. I can't get them to, we don't share the same values over this. And part of the problem is, is not the editors and the publisher. They have to live by values in the book industry. Now, basketball books really sell to serious hoop heads and they do well. I mean, Bill Simmons book, gosh, that thing's a monster. Yeah. But that's sold and sold and sold. It's, I mean, Still selling, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And uh, Michael Jordan, The Life's in 20 foreign languages. Those licenses to publish in foreign languages hardly ever get renewed. And one by one, all of those licenses are coming back to renew for another five years. And it has been the most stolen book, probably. You know, Jordan is such a figure. The illegal downloads are through the roof. And I mean, that's just life you're not going to stop right particularly if they don't discipline the online folks but uh in all of this uh i didn't realize that i would be fighting this battle so i don't know i can't make them see you it's a different value system they're operating by what makes good sense in publishing i'm operating by a lifetime of knowing what basketball readers want. I've got some lovely stories about Jordan. I mean, uh, Magic's adolescence, amazing stuff. And a lot of it complicated. A lot of it is tied up in a lot of racial, but I really wanted to go in and examine in detail integration in the seventies. How did we integrate it around basketball? because it was really sort of a taboo subject. We all just showed up and smiled at each other and had these very different cultural reference points and very different backgrounds and very little understanding of one another. 
and sort of somehow made our way to where we are today with still not having looked at who we are and how we treat each other. And so what I wanted to do was really 100%. deep dive. And I, I was really excited about it, but um, the agent, my agent and the editor sort of like mine and I, that my agent hadn't been around for my other books, sort of a like mine that all oh, that stuff's boring. Uh, it's and a shame. There are, people, there are people who don't like it, but the the books are five star on Amazon because there are a lot of people who do, and the ones who don't, right? They express their opinion, but right, they, they don't have to buy it. And I'm a former high school English teacher, and one of the things that I love about the books is it gets the athletes, it gets the basketball players, it kind of gets them in the door with you know, hey, here's a biography of Michael Jordan. But then it's like, okay, we're going to give you some vegetables too. We're going to give you um, a history here of Black Americans in the 20th century. And of and course, I'm so not doing any of this alone. This is done by great people who have sort of, I'm a hunting pet guy out here finding my way along. And I, they're just great examples. Right. Um, but they they're afraid they're saying uh, literally their comments are this part is absolutely great but i'm getting really bored with all the racial stuff and so um yeah because because it because it's so much not an issue in american life today well i you know but i don't care who you are black or white it's hard to talk about race and it's, but that's another reason why these books are so good because again it's you know we're coming in the side door it gives you a private space to read about race and how people felt, you know, um, one, uh, and it all involves a, a series of figures, but it's also black power stories. And I look at a lot of the uh, black males who were empowered in Lansing and they, they made a difference. And, uh, you know, I really sort of probably went through that in excruciating detail. But if you're empowering a black male in the 1970s in the public schools, I think that's a big deal. One of his aunts was married to a, uh, a Reconstruction senator. And the role this senator played, he was a protege of this slave family that was so powerful and the role he played in the funding at both UNC and NC state and uh, wow. in having all that amputated by Jim Crow, you know, from Wilmington, all of the, wow. all of that history has been lost. He was called the slave Senator and he, that that's magic Johnson. That's empowerment in magic Johnson's mother's side of the family. That's his, that's magic Johnson's great. So he, he'd been a slave and he became a, a senator. senator. Uh, he became a delegate first and then a senator. And he cast the deciding vote on in the 1880s on key funding that kept UNC alive. And all that's lost to history. The Kobe book's really about connecting Joe yeah. Bryant to his son or Kobe to his father and mm -hmm the value system of, of showboating basketball that is the essence of Kobe. Well, I mean, I don't think people, most people realize this unless they've read your book that 
one of the big reasons Kobe Bryant went pro out of high school was that uh, Joe was broke. Yeah, it was. And people don't realize that. They don't realize how much Kobe where won. where would Kobe have gone, by the way? Um, pretty much the idea is Duke. He had a lot of options, obviously. Right. Um, but Sonny Vaccaro, who engineered everything that happened with Kobe and spent lots of time and was in the frame of mind, you know, he was gonna be very straightforward about all of it. They, Kobe had to sign the contract that would have paid with the first kid ever to be paid millions to turn pro by mm -hmm. a shoe contract. And he looked at Sonny Vaccaro and said, Mr. Vaccaro, is there a way that I can sign this contract and my parents can have this money and I can go play college basketball? And, and to me, that was one of the saddest moments in his life story. Now he went on, he had a, people don't realize how absolutely miserable he was from 96 to well into the first champion toward the first championship being a kid in, in a, a game, he was a fish out of water, but he had said, can, is there any way I can sign this? They can have the money and I can go play college basketball. And Tex Winter said the great difference between Michael and Kobe. I already know Dean Smith. Yeah. Well, Michael went and played three years in that really tight system. And Kobe didn't have the benefit of that. Now, the other thing is Bill Guthridge. Now, Dean Smith didn't run the triangle, but Bill Guthridge was Tex Winter's point guard. And then, oh, it, wow. And was his assistant coach for years at Kansas State. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. And was fully. Oh, right. Because Dean triangle. Smith was from Kansas. Okay. Now it makes right. sense. And so Bill Guthridge was a hire. And, you know, he was, he was the primo guy. And, and so, Tech said they weren't running the triangle, but they ran very tight system basketball. The pro coaches complained about UNC all the time. You couldn't tell if they were athletes, the players were. You couldn't see who had what level of athleticism because the, the offense hit it. And right. as um, Anthony Tichy, who played at Wake Forest, played in high school against Michael and then played against him at Wake Forest, He's, he told me for Michael Jordan the life, he said, no one has ever given Michael the credit for having the character to play for Dean Smith and to spend those three years. And he would have stayed four if Dean, Jerry Krause always insisted that Dean Smith kicked Michael out of the program. Now that's an overstatement, but Dean really did. Michael, he wouldn't Once have had to say but stay another yeah. year and he would have stayed. Yep. But, but Michael was a handful. And um, so Michael had the character to play in that system, but losing to Bobby Knight's team, as Billy Packer said, if, if, if they had just stopped and said, okay, Michael, you go off the dribble, they would have blown him out. And, you know, it would, it would, they'd have killed Indiana, but they were faithful to the system. To mm -hmm. the end. Mm -hmm. Like I, I love talking basketball and all of that, but it's really, obviously the, you, the, you have a great, background in it so it makes the, it fun to have this kind of conversation thank you yeah for it. but 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 it's really um i want to be clear both to you and to the listeners it's the scholarship you've done 
around uh, the scholarship you've done about the history of the United States um, that, that I think is really, is such a benefit to us readers and to us as people. And, and so thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. Thanks, Roland. Take care. That's my conversation with Roland Lazenby. Roland's two most recent books are Showboat, about the life of Kobe Bryant, and Michael Jordan, The Life. They're both fantastic, and I can't recommend them highly enough. Speaking of books, my book, Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, drops November 1st exclusively on Amazon. If you're interested in basketball, in coaching, in leadership, in Namibia, in how coaching needs to change, and we need to embrace a more positive model of coaching, a la Ted Lasso, this is the book for you. Here's the tagline for it, the description. Pressure plays, buzzer beaters, and mindfulness meditation. A team of teenagers goes for the championship in Namibia's professional basketball league. I'm Ben Guest. You can find me on Twitter at BGuest. And if you haven't already, please sign up at my Substack so you get a weekly email with the podcast and an update. And that's benbo.substack.com. B-E-N-B-O. Benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.